along with our two-page project description. So that's for anybody who might want to see what we look like. <laughs> um, oh, and third, I'd like to say hello to David in Japan, who will be listening to this talk on the website and has been writing me lovely letters this year. Hi, David. <laughs> okay, I think that's preliminaries. This is going to be a funny talk because it's paradoxical and I'm not sure how it's going to work. Um, what I'm taking as my text is Suzuki Roshi on nothing special. So, if you continue this simple practice every day, you will obtain a wonderful power. Before you obtain it, it is something wonderful, but after you obtain it, it's nothing special. It's just you yourself, nothing special. As a Chinese poem says, I went and I returned. It was nothing special. Roseanne, famous for its misty mountains, Seiku for its water. People think it must be wonderful to see a famous range of mountains covered by mists and the water said to cover all the earth. But if you go there, you will just see water and mountains. Nothing special. Um, what I like to do when I'm lucky enough to be here is kind of put out the cutting edge of where my practice is in Cambodia and see what it feels like in a group of practitioners you know, with the kind of depth that exists here. So I will talk a little bit about what our project does. And then I want to talk about this year's discoveries. <laughs> um, we are at the end of our sixth year of working. We are now eight people. And we visit the sick. The sick that we visit are people with AIDS in Cambodia. Uh, we target the destitute. Originally, when we started the project, everybody died. Now, in the, in the past few years especially, antiretrovirals have come in and become available, and especially in Phnom Penh. So our project has shifted somewhat where we're doing an enormous amount of social work. Um, we do not provide essentials. We are not providers of food or money or medicine, which means that we work in conjunction with organizations that do that. We link up a lot. Our closest friends are Mary Knoll, whom some of you may know. They're a Catholic missionary order that does not do conversions and who know how to work at the grassroots level. They have a project that takes care of more than 2,000 AIDS patients and families. And it's everything from income generation to group homes to hospice to children with AIDS to orphans from AIDS. And they do a wonderful job and they do it right at the level where people are comfortable. And we are their unofficial Buddhist chaplains. 
So we visit their group homes and we visit their patients. And when their patients go in the hospital, we see them in the hospital. And my Khmer nun goes to their hospice two or three times a week, more often if there's somebody who needs to be seen more often. Um, We work in several slums in conjunction with other organizations. Um, This year, we've added two staff members, and we've also added a couple of really great organizations (laughs) because our patient load was getting easier was getting easier because people are on antiretrovirals for a while and they're managing and they don't need the kind of intense support. What we provide, before I go into our new patients, we provide um, something called monkey balm, which is like Vicks VapoRub and is used for everything. We give people that every two weeks, a small jar. Um, it's good for massage. We use it for massage. Um, We provide small Buddhas. We provide ceremonies for people who don't get ceremonies. It's one of the important things that we do. Our patients do not have the money to have the monks come, so we're the free alternative. That means that we do ceremonies when people have died before their cremation. We we help people go to the Watts for the seventh day ceremony. On the seventh day following death, your bones are put into the urn with some special prayers. You're told not to come back and the urn is sealed with string. And that has to be done in the Watt. So we give people money to go to the Watt to do that and we provide the urns and we go with them. Um, A few years ago, the National AIDS Hospital asked us to do something about their mortuary. And so we put in a huge Buddha and every two weeks we go and we physically scrub the place because after all my root tradition is Zen and I wouldn't be happy if we weren't scrubbing. (laughs) And then we purify it with incense and with amrita, which as most of you know is this The Tibetans make it with a combination of herbs and prayers. And we have some that we use in water and sprinkle. And then we have some, we have some pills that actually came from the Dalai Lama himself through a friend of mine. And we'll put three of those for each of the refuges into the mouth of someone who's died so that it can go with them. Um... So we purify the room with amrita and incense. If there is someone there, we chant especially for them. And then we do general chanting. And it's now a very warm and peaceful place. I have a lot of photos of this because it's actually one of all of our favorite activities. You know, with strange taste. (laughs) But the hospitals are terrible. And some of them are getting better. In one of the, in, in, the, in this hospital, never mind. Um, in one of the new hospitals that started giving antiretrovirals where they have a palliative care program, 
they have a big, big, big canvas picture of the Buddha and metal flowers. And when someone is dying, they put that next to the bed with the flowers and incense. And that's terrific. That's just terrific. And then if it's, you know, if we're there or it's someone we know and we know, then we'll go in and chant. So we do that. Uh, We provide time. There are a lot of organizations doing very good work, but they don't know what to do with the things that fall outside their own parameters. Okay, so we work in the interstices. You know, you don't know what to do because your kid is not in school. Okay, we hook you up with the organization that supports your kid to go to school. You know, you don't know how to get antiretrovirals. We take you and get you registered in the program. You know, you're frightened at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night because your neighbor who just started antiretrovirals, the first month on antiretrovirals is often very difficult for people. Does everyone know what antiretrovirals are? Those are the medicines that will keep you alive and help you get enough strength so that you can actually work and live. All right. So those are, but they don't work for everybody, which has been hard for us in the past year. Anyway, if you, if you are very close to death when you start to take them, your first month on them is very hard. You get all kinds of physical reactions. You often see lots of ghosts. All kinds of things happen. So if it's 11 o'clock at night and somebody is trying to kill themselves because of the ghosts in their house on their first month of antiretrovirals, we're the people who go. <laughs> okay? <laughs> all right. You know, we do what comes up to do, you know? and we're designed to be as flexible as possible in that. The deeper purpose, you know, all of us know that the, the infinite compassion of the Buddha is already here. But accessing it is sometimes hard. So what we're trying to do is help people access that. Help people know that that's already present for them. And everything we do is to that end. So that's what we do. And it's gotten pretty funny this year. Um, We've picked up several new organizations to coordinate with that make me personally very happy. Most of our organizations are fairly straightforward. (coughs) The vast majority of our patients are husbands, wives who've gotten AIDS from their husbands, and children. We are not specialists with children. There are organizations that are, but, you know, we're dealing with families, so. Um, We've started working with the Sex Workers Union 
and with the new organization for transsexuals. Now, there are no actual transsexuals in Cambodia because they can't get the operation. But there is a, these are more than transvestites, these are people who live as women and sell sex as women. All right. And they are hideously discriminated against. So, for example, uh, about three weeks before I left on this trip, I got an emergency call from one of our transsexuals who didn't know where to go for medicine because she had a huge boil next to her penis and was afraid of how the doctors would treat her. So we got her to Mary Knoll, because Mary Knoll's always kind. <laughs> and she's doing fine now. But that's the kind of situation where if there had been nobody to call, that would have been untreated. You know, and then we had a very serious long talk with her because, you know, she's worried about taking her tuberculosis medicine when it's necessary for her to take amphetamines as part of her work. So how do we do that? How does she combine that? How do we keep help her stay safe in the middle of this? Um, You know, we tell the patients, the Buddha never told us you you weren't going to get sick. He never said you weren't going to get old. He never said you weren't going to die. He never said terrible things weren't going to happen. What the Buddha promised us is that it is possible to develop a peaceful and joyous heart right in the middle of that. Yeah. So the closer we are to the places that organizations and other assistance hasn't reached, the happier I am. Because for some people, I mean, AIDS is never easy. And our patients are all destitute. And they all have thousands of problems, all right? But for some people, it's really, really, really hard. And the people that we are getting through these organizations, the new organizations, are people who are very likely to die. We have a very high death rate with these people because they have not had care until it's too late. So we're hoping over time, as the relationships develop, we get the cases earlier, we get people to assistance earlier, and this also helps. So that's kind of what we do, and that's kind of where the project is this year. Um, now, the, the part I want to talk about, and then throw it open to questions, is at a certain point I realized that this is just our ordinary life. That's what we're doing. And that felt terrific to me. 
like, okay, you get up, you know, you meditate, I do the administrative work in the morning, sometimes I have emergencies in the morning, we all get together and meditate at 12.30, we have a short meeting afterwards, and then we all divide up into four teams and go out and see people. We see our regular cases. I tend to troubleshoot the emergencies and try to get things stabilized. And my team is really good, really, really good now. If you look at the pictures of them working, you'll see they're fabulous. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we do. And it's just normal life. And it feels wonderful that it's normal life. It gives us a whole lot more energy. It gives us a lot more joy. I mean, I'm going to tell you one more story that's going to make you think it's completely crazy, and then I'll probably shut up. But we got an emergency call, and I was working with the youngest member of our staff because everybody else was on break for a week. We take breaks often, and we do a lot of training. Because if we don't do that training, we can't do this work. Yeah. Anyway, so we get a call, and there is a 50-year-old woman who has been sleeping on a bed under a tarp outside someone's house. And the landlord wants to throw her out because he's afraid she's going to die there. Okay, so we go with, uh, this is actually a sex workers union case, and they take us to the house, and yes, that's the situation, and I call the missionary sisters, Mother Teresa's group has a hospice there, and they often have a bed. So I call, and there's a bed, and we get ready to take her, and there we are on two motorcycles. I'm with the sex workers union person, and she's on the back with, with my new staff member, Richard, and um, we're on our way the 10 kilometers out to where the hospice is, and it's a pouring monsoon rainstorm. <laughs> so we buy raincoats for 25 cents each. <laughs> and we continue, and we get her there safely, and we get her into dry clothes. And in fact, she's been picked up by an organization that's taking good care of her now. But... Um, we get her there and, you know, towel her off and change her clothes and get her settled into the bed and all the rest of it. And we're done and I'm on my way back. We're on our way back. And I, I say to our newest staff member who's been going on fairly routine things up until now, I say, it's a lot more fun than the rest, isn't it? And he says, yeah. <laughs> Three years ago, man, I wouldn't have known it was fun. <laughs> so what I want to what I want to sort of put out here tonight is that when we're able to get out of our own way enough that it becomes ordinary then it is truly miraculous and a cause of great gratitude yeah and I work around people who have known this for a while, and I'm finally getting it into my thick head and into my thick heart. And it's a very, very, very great gift. 
and we're enormously lucky to be where we are and to be able to do what we do. Um, so I think I'll thank you and throw this open to questions, okay? Mm. Yeah. Um, hello. <laughs> um, so, like, you were here a year ago, and you were talking yeah. about, or about a year ago, yeah. um, about how with your um the people you work with you have to be you're you're aware of um dependency relationships mm-hmm. yes. and that uh, one thing you said that was um like a turning of the wheel for me was that in different cultures dependency relationships are different mm-hmm. and and people enter and mm-hmm. and that's that's been really helpful but i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how cuz i'm i'm finding that's something that i have to navigate a lot and it's it's like you want to have an open heart, and you're you shouldn't be afraid. But then you you know you you're not quite sure if you are like <laughs> going to be able to support this person. You know, it's just uh-huh. confusing. It's really okay. confusing. Okay, this is ongoing training for us. Okay, ongoing training. I'm a foreigner, so I'm supposed to be rich. All right, the fact. The fact is, in the last few years, we're actually able to do more material things for people. And we try to do them secretly. But that doesn't always work. All right? And that creates jealousy in people who are not having that done. And we deal with all of those things all the time. But I think what helps... is to try to know as much specifically as possible about what the expectations are. Because if you don't, and you can't meet them, then it gets very, very, very painful. You know, uh, the background of this, for those who don't know, there is no onus on dependency in Cambodia. There's no sense that you ought to get help and become independent. You know, uh, relationships are hierarchical, patronage is standard, and the expectation is that if someone starts to take care of someone, they're going to take care of them. So in my first few years in Cambodia, I had a terrible time with this. I had a terrible time because I created expectations I couldn't meet. And I had a terrible time because the psychological side of this is something I had to learn how to deal with. Because the deference behaviors that accompany the dependency are things that I abreact to. I get very, very, very reactive to it. So I had to learn how to not, how to control that reactivity first, because until I could control the reactivity, I couldn't begin to find out what was going on. 
Um, the classic case that I probably used a couple of years ago in our own organization is when we got our, our Khmer nun, we got her because we knew her because her son had died of AIDS. And um, she was feisty. And the moment she went to work for me, that feistiness disappeared. And it took me two years before she would disagree with me about anything. So I had to double and triple think her in order to find out. <laughs> you know. And it was important because she knows a lot of stuff that I don't. Yeah. She's a 70-year-old woman who's been a poor woman in Cambodia all of her life, has survived the Khmer Rouge, has survived all kinds of things. When she's really with it with the patients, she's everybody's grandma and the Buddha right at the same time. She's a miracle. But I couldn't find out anything because she would wait to hear what she thought I want, you know, I wanted to, she would wait to find out what she thought I wanted her to say. And then she would say that. <laughs> so we had this one, it, it took two years to get through it. And the first thing I had to stop doing was reacting to her, abreacting to her deference behaviors. Yeah. So it's hard training. I guess what I can say about it is that it's important to find out as much as possible about the specifics of what's going on. The specifics of the expectations, the specifics of the misunderstandings. And then it helps, that helps to be in a position to see what might be a course. The second thing for me, I don't know if you had this problem, but for me, it's very important to learn how to be gentle. You know, to be able to say, no, I can't do that to someone and not be defensive in that, you know and to be able to be loving even when I can't give them what they want. Now, a lot of times they're still mad. They're still unhappy. Right? Because they've built up all of these castles in the air about you know, how they're going to get X, Y, and Z from me. But I have two staff members who are geniuses at finding out what's really going on. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't get snookered as much as we used to. <laughs> you know, people tell me all kinds of stories because I'm a foreigner. And then I send in Pia Pinche Lang and they find out what's really happening and then we all sit down together and decide what the best strategy is. Yeah. Does that help at all? Yeah. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Um, I actually have two questions. One is <laughs> I think now people can hear me, but anyway, I appreciate your presentation and enjoyed it. 
Um, I have two questions. One's kind of a technical question, and that is, um, do you know what companies supply the medications, the antiretrovirals? Yes. And the second <laughs> question, if you want me to give you that, is could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in working in Cambodia? Sure. <laughs> I tried to go straight. <laughs> um, Cambodia was a beneficiary of the Indian declaration three years ago that they would not abide by the World Trade Organization prohibition and would give Medicine Sans Frontiers uh, antiretrovirals in Africa and Cambodia for as many patients as they wanted at the cost of $350 a year a patient. So the first antiretrovirals that came in are from that Indian company. I don't know the name of the company, but it's easy to track. The least expensive antiretrovirals and the most in use right now are made in Thailand. Okay. Um, and they cost $27.50 a patient a month. Now, most of our patients get antiretrovirals for free through the various organizations. Um, the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria is spending a lot of money on antiretrovirals. So there are now almost a dozen places in Phnom Penh and another dozen throughout the country where you can get them. But it's primarily the Indian ones and the Thai ones, Medicine Sans Frontiers has some backup with some French ones. Um, I think on very, very, very rare occasions, American ones are used, but they're so expensive that they're, they're a last resort. They're used, I hope this isn't too technical for most people, but uh, there's liver complications from one of the medicines. And that also, uh, a vast, a huge number of our patients have tuberculosis. And in your third, first three months of tuberculosis treatment, you're taking a complex bunch of medicines, one of which is extremely hard on your liver. So if there's someone who has to go into antiretrovirals during that period, or if somebody's tuberculosis flares up when they're early on antiretrovirals, they'll switch to the, the higher. Okay. Does that help? I don't know the names of the actual companies. <laughs> um, I'm a recovering academic. <laughs> I left university teaching in 82 and started doing human rights work and spent seven years in the West Bank and Gaza Strip doing human rights work from 86 to 93 and then came back and couldn't readjust to America. And what I learned doing human rights work in the West Bank and Gaza was how to base the work on people's own priorities not coming in with a set agenda. The human rights conventions are huge. You know, they're enormous. So what I learned was how to base the work on people's own priorities and needs 
and be answerable to them. And I actually had a certain amount of success when I was there. We had a project that kept families together and kept people in the country in spite of draconian regulations designed to deport them as illegal aliens. Okay? So then I came back to the U.S. and I couldn't adjust. And I wanted to go someplace where the specific human rights issues were different to see how that deeper question played out. And I wanted to go someplace where my Buddhist practice could be more integrated with my activist life. So I went to the International Network of Engaged Buddhists in Thailand, and it's a wonderful organization, but I was hideously disappointed because Thailand is not a third world country. <laughs> Thailand has working educational systems, it has working medical systems. It's <laughs> all the things that disappointed me then, I adore about it now. <laughs> so I went to Cambodia on the annual Peace Walk. And I met Mahagosananda, who is, now he lives in, in America and is very, very old. But he was still actively leading the Peace Walks, and he's just beautiful. So it was like a setup. <laughs> Here's this hideously destitute country. <laughs> and the most compassionate human being I've ever met or seen in my life. So that's how I got to Cambodia. And it took a few years to figure out what I wanted to be doing. But the basic issues in Cambodia are health and poverty. And they came together around AIDS. And actually they came together, I know some of you have heard this before, around a very specific question. Um, I was visiting AIDS patients with Mary Knoll, and I happened to chant. And the mo man's mother said to me the next day, he said, you know, that was so good because he's, he believes he has AIDS because of his karma. We don't have money for the monks, and he is terrified that his next life is going to be worse. And I thought, okay, that's one tiny, 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 tiny piece of this huge problem that doesn't have to be this way because that's not what the Buddha taught. Yeah. So that was the beginning of this project. The beginning of this project was how to help people not have that unnecessary terror at the time of death that comes from wrong teachings, and the absence of support. And that's how we started. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, I think, do we have time for one more? <clears throat> okay. Any? Yeah. Thank you. I wanted to know how we can get involved in this kind of work. Which kind of work? Um, I guess not any specific program, but just very broadly, human rights in general, or anything related to what you've been talking about. You have to start where you are. You know, 
What is it that is in front of you that demands your compassion? Where is the suffering that arises when you sit to meditate your own suffering rises and the sufferings of others rise Hmm? where is that it doesn't matter I mean in my first years I spent a lot of time trying to build bridges about you know the suffering there is so strange it there can't be a connection and all suffering is equal and between that Scylla and Charybdis is a path. Um, Was that too much shorthand for people or did that make sense? (laughs) Um, It doesn't matter what we do. No. There is so much suffering that any place that we enter that, any place that we enter that where we can feel that we are being taught by it is wonderful. And for all of us, those places are different. So, what I would do is allow that question, sit with that question, sit with that question and see what comes up. There's much too much work and many too many few people to do it and there's no need to be ideological about where or when or how or why. (laughs) Some place is going to call you. Listen. Thanks. Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay, I have nine exactly, so I guess that's I just it's such a privilege to be in this community. Yeah. I mean, it's such, to sit in this seat where Gil sits and where incredible, wonderful teachers come and talk. I mean, that's my friend Judy. I was terrified coming in here today. But everyone's kindness really helps. We have a very small very marginal project, you know, that teaches us. And we're lucky, lucky, lucky to have it. Um, And 
it's wonderful of you to welcome me to talk about it. So I thank you very much.